I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. Few banks are as embedded in the startup community as the Silicon Valley Bank. As a lender, investor, and cheerleader, the Silicon Valley Bank has been a backer for startups that are now household names like Airbnb, Fitbit, and Pinterest, and it's been a critical source of financing for venture capitalists in the ecosystem. But with all the success it's had, some of our listeners have been curious about just how the bank operates and how financial institutions in the innovation economy evaluate the constantly evolving nature of risk, market, regulatory, and social, especially given the growing social activism in the Valley. And we are a podcast that aims to please and are delighted to have onto the show Greg Becker, the CEO of Silicon Valley Bank, and Michael Zuckert, the bank's general counsel, here with us to tackle just such questions. Plus, I'm happy to be joined in the conversation with two of the best from the finance and legal worlds, Yesha Yadav, a leading lawyer and business professor at Vanderbilt, and the famous Kate Waldeck, a former business law professor and podcaster whom I lured from her legal studies to come join in on the fun. Now, Greg and Michael have given us an extraordinary opportunity to basically ask any question. So we decided to look under the trunk of the Silicon Valley Bank and along with it, the future of risk. Michael, Greg, thanks so much for making on to Fintech Beat. Thanks, Chris. Great to be here. Great to be here. Thanks, Chris. And Yesha and Kate, thanks for joining us in the fun. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. Silicon Valley Bank is really a pretty interesting story. Founded in the early 80s, right on the eve of the Macintosh computer and the rebirth of Apple. Um, And it had a very different clientele and and really grew to be a player in the innovation economy, not only in Silicon Valley, but, but really... Uh, all over the world. Uh, Greg, you're, you're the boss, so I'll start here with you. Maybe you can take us through that origin story. Uh, where did Silicon Valley Bank come from, and what was the arc of its development? Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty interesting story. At least I find it interesting. People may not uh, fully appreciate it, but uh, I'll tell you the story, and then people can decide for themselves if it's interesting or not. Um, you know, the bank got started back in 1983. Uh, it was founded by some uh, bankers that were bankers at other institutions and they came together and they said, look, we're in the heart of Silicon Valley. And there's no institution that's that's really focused on Silicon Valley. So the model is going to be technology companies tend to have more cash, more liquidity, and we'll have those, we'll bank them and we'll take that liquidity and then we're going to give it and we're going to lend it to um, real estate companies and then traditional commercial industries. That was the, the, the original model of Silicon Valley Bank back in 83, 84, 85, et cetera. And what happened was in the late 80s, California went through a real estate crisis. And so that we used to call it, the, or they used to call it the three legs, three-legged stool. So one of our legs got kicked out from under us because real estate um, went completely horrible. And so we decided that that's not a good place to be anymore. So we had um, two legs to our stool. It was technology and innovation, and it was traditional commercial industries. 
And traditional commercial industries was just a market that everybody, every other bank competed with. So we didn't have anything unique or differentiated. So over the 90s, we took those two, those two pieces and it kept migrating down to what are we really good at? And that's where our exclusive focus in the technology and innovation space really took, took hold. And then kind of crazy enough, we said, well, if we're going to do it in the U.S., this is in the early 2000s, we were a pretty small institution. We decided if we want to be the bank for the global innovation economy, we need to be global. So in basically a 24-month period, when we were very tiny, we set up offices in India, in China, in the U.K., in Israel all kind of in a very short period of time. And I think in hindsight, that was uh, a little ambitious, uh, but it turned out actually to be uh, spot on. And that's why we do have those presences and they're all, all doing so well. So it's been a, it's been a really fun journey. And uh, again, I've been here for at least the, uh, the, the latter innings of that, of that story. And it's been super fun. That's really uh, an, an arc there, and I think it's worth going just another level deeper uh, to get a better sense of your business model. Certainly, one particular aspect of what you do uh, is lending to startups. Maybe you can walk us through just sort of that area of, of your business uh, and, and just why a bank would want to lend to startups in the first place. I'll start with the, the simple question first, which is, are we a bank? And the answer is Yes. Uh, we believe that, and our regulators certainly believe that as well. So that's uh, that makes it easy. But let's talk about our our business model, as you as you asked. Uh, the simplest way to describe our business model is that we are first focused on the innovation economy, so technology and life sciences almost exclusively. We bring in thousands of new startups each year, and our whole goal is to help grow them help them be successful so they can grow up and become large public companies, um, the true innovators that are making a difference in all of our lives. And we're structured in a way that allows that to happen. We're structured by business unit. So we have four businesses, commercial banking, which is the biggest by far. We have investment banking, which today is focused on healthcare, but we're going to be getting into technology, investment banking. Investing, which is SVB capital. So that's where we take limited partners money, and we invest in venture capital firms, and we invest in companies. And then the last piece is private banking and wealth. And how this works is all all these four businesses work together to support this ecosystem in growing innovation companies from startups to very large companies. And so in its simple sense, that's that's what we what we do. Your your last question, just to get to that, was um, how do we lend money to, to companies um, or why would we do that? We work with companies um, and we work with venture capitalists and we work with companies that we really understand how they operate. So we work with them to understand pattern recognition around risk. We understand how to structure deals in a way that we can do it effectively lending money to companies that lose money. And it's it's our uniqueness. It's what makes us um, differentiated. And it's one of the most fun parts about what I get to do on a daily basis. So if I can just pick up on that, Greg, um, what kind of startups do you see that would want to take debt? Um, are there particular sectors of the innovation economy that you focus on and that are uh, the key customers of, of Silicon Valley Bank? And in addition to that, um, how do you design your covenants uh, to restrict what kind of risk they can take? 
Um, well, let's go to your first part, which is um, what sort of businesses do we lend to our segments? And the answer is all of the above. Um, so we work with software companies, internet companies, we work with biotech companies, we work with uh, consumer companies, um, all in this innovation space. And we we can understand or work with them to lend money to almost any of them, right? Your point was structure. So you structure deals in different ways to accommodate the structure to support the business. So working with a biotech company and how you structure loans is very different than a um, SaaS software company. So with a SaaS software company, as an example, we'll finance recurring revenue. We'll take a monthly recurring revenue and we may lend to them and say, if your recurring revenue is um, $5 million per month, we may lend you um, 30, 40, 50, 60 million dollars, right? And it's it's based on understanding the, the industry. It's based on understanding the recurring nature of the revenue streams. And so your third question is, why would somebody take the debt? Why would somebody borrow it? Well, it's a lower cost of capital than equity is the is the simplest answer, right? Equity is dilutive, it is more expensive. And if you can borrow money at a lower, much lower rate. And it allows you to extend your runway so you can continue to build the business without having to take more equity or extend the timing. That really adds value to the business. It's better for the company and it's better for the investors. That's the biggest, that's the biggest rationale for doing it. Now, in today's world, what makes it unique is there's so much money from equity out there. In some ways, we're competing with the flow of equity as much as we're competing with other lenders trying to lend money to these companies. So lots of companies take debt. Um, it's the right model for a lot of different companies. And uh, we definitely lend across the spectrum. You talk about really understanding the companies that you lend to. And you also gave an example of you know recurring revenue streams. But what happens if you're looking at a company at a startup that has no revenue at all, that has you know negative free cash flows? What sort of model do you build to evaluate the lending decision there? Good question, Kate. And I, I look at it. Um, there's companies that we work with that have their cash flow positive. There's companies we lend to that are cash flow negative or they're losing money, but they have revenue. And there's companies we will lend money to that have neither, that have no revenue and clearly by definition would have no, no cash flow, right? And so if you're like, each one of those requires a different approach and a different um, analysis. When you get all the way down to the ones that would be most um, maybe questionable if for the listeners, the ones that have no revenue and how do you lend money to that, that's where you really look at who the investors are, um, what's the enterprise value, and when they will have revenue. Mostly that applies to biotech companies because most biotech companies, as most of us know, um, when they have a drug under development, that drug may not go to market for, for years. But what they may have is relationships with pharma or other big biotechs where they're given them milestone payments based on accomplishing certain goals. So we can look at financing those milestones based on the understanding knowledge of how um, what those milestones are, probability they'll finance those milestones, and you structure your loan around that. So we literally can lend money all the way up and down that, that business model where it's no revenue, Revenue plus no cash flow, and obviously revenue plus cash flow, and that's that's quite honestly it's the most fun part of our job. We can work with any type of companies, um, 
that are really changing the world. And that's, that's super exciting. So you've been in this space for a while now. How long has it been? Uh, well, the bank's been around since 1983. I joined uh, 10 years later. So I've been here for um, 28 years, a very, very, very long time, which is pretty rare in, uh, in industries, especially right now. But um, and what's been exciting about that part is, you know, we've changed so much, but the, the innovation economies evolved so much and we've grown so much. It's always, it always feels like there's another chapter to, to read. There's another chapter to play out. And that's what's been so exciting for the last 28 years of my career, but also what I get excited about on a go-forward basis. Yeah, so I'm curious about that evolution, especially you know, on the startup side. Um, have their attitudes towards debt and equity evolved over the time that you've been there? And also, given your success, does that mean that you're starting to see new entrants, new competitors that are maybe giving you some heat? Well, I'll start with the first question, um, which is um, what's, what's evolved or how has it evolved? And how I would, how would describe it, Kate, is uh, the biggest change when I think of when I first started at SVB or maybe you know, 15 or 20 years ago, the size of the loans that we were doing um, were, you know, $1 million, $2 million, $3 million. And it was pretty comparable to the level of venture capital that was coming in. So if we were lending 2 or $3 million, maybe the rounds of equity financing that were coming in were four, five, six, seven million dollars million. Fast forward today, what's changed is the rounds of financing are massively larger. Right. You'll see rounds of equity financing that are, even in a Series A round, it could be $20, $30, $40 million in a Series A round. Or in a Series B or a Series C, you're talking about $100 million rounds of financing or more. So the, the biggest change is what we've had to do from a lending perspective is expand the product set that we have and the type of loans that we do, but also the size of the loans. So we may lend money at a Series A company, which would maybe be historically one or two million, now we may lend money of five, six, seven, ten, fifteen million dollars to a company. So number one, it, it's size. Number two, when you ask a question about openness, um, yeah, there's a lot more openness to borrowing money than there were um, 15, 20 years ago. It felt like we were in a missionary uh, sale about explaining what it was and how it operated, and now it's much more mainstream. So. Um, it's been more open-minded than it would have been a long time ago. So if I can follow up with a quick question, um, do you have to think about valuation in new ways um, than a traditional bank might have to do, given the range of companies that you're lending to, this um, larger amount of debt that you're uh, lending into the market these days? Is there something different about how you do valuation uh, or think about valuation, the methodologies, the assumptions, and so forth, that might differentiate you from other banks? From a company perspective, valuations are a piece of the puzzle, but it's not it's not the main it's not the main uh, event. We we don't underwrite exclusively to the enterprise value of a company. It's one of many things that we consider when we're looking at it. Right? There's some companies, as an example, that have high valuations, but I would say they're super high beta. What I mean by that is. If they work and they're successful, they're going to they're going to be amazingly successful. Conversely, if they fail, it ends up being a zero. There's other businesses that the valuation's high, but it actually is if they miss, if there's a problem, 
it doesn't go from a billion dollar valuation to zero. It goes from a billion dollar valuation down to 600 million or 500 million or 400 million. And you have to understand the differences between the two, because if you get that wrong from a risk perspective, you could end up lending to a situation that you think has got upside. And then when it changes, you've got big problems on your hands. So you really have to understand how that, how that operates. Um, I do want to come back to one question that Kate uh, said in our two-part question, which is on competition. And, um, you know, I always described it to our, our employees this way. We have picked the best target market in the entire world. It is innovation and it's growing and it's growing fast and it's cool and it's awesome. And you get to meet so many interesting people. If you were another institution and you were looking at your strategic plan and you looked at most industries, most markets, most of those markets are shrinking, slow growth, and they're struggling to grow. So I always tell our team, we have massive targets, bullseyes on our back, and we should assume that will be the case. And it's only gotten worse over time. Now, the good news target market that we have is growing at an incredibly fast pace. So it's not as if we're all trying to fight for the same size market, right? It's growing at a big pace. So that's a good part. The second part is, as described it, we're looking at the windshield. We're not looking out of the review mirror, meaning we have got to build our own business for how we want to differentiate ourselves and how we want to add value to the companies. What's interesting about innovation companies is that small decisions can have a massive impact on their success. They move quickly. They have to make decisions quickly that will impact their business. So my point is, we can't promise that if a company works with us, we're going to be, they're going to be successful. But I want to get to a point that the probability of their success is higher by working with us. And I keep talking about that to our team every single day. So super competitive. It's going to only get more competitive but we have to play our own game and think differently than what a traditional bank would. So we've heard now about risk, risk for startups, risk for companies that may or may not have an established cash flow, risks that could certainly send a shiver down the spine of the unprepared. But what does risk look like, not just for a bank in the innovation economy, but for a banking lawyer? Michael, you're the SVB's top legal guy, so this question is for you. Um, what does risk mean, and how do these risks compare to those in legacy industries? Chris, happy to jump in on risk, and, and uh, we have a pretty broad business, as, as Greg just said. Greg has talked about the core risk, which is credit risk, but as I think about risk, we face a whole range of novel risks. So I know you're interested in this topic. I started thinking about this just in the last week, and I decided to keep sort of a blotter of risk issues that just crossed my desk in the last week. And I'm just going to give you kind of tick through them, just categories of risk, okay? So we have a political action committee, right? In light of the events in Washington on January 6th, one of the questions for political action committee is, do we pause contributions? We worked through that with the board of our PAC. That's one category of risk. China trade, relationships with China, investment in the U.S., What's the Biden administration going to do about that? Again, key issue in Silicon Valley right now. Three, obviously, Reddit, Robinhood, GameStop. We could have a very long separate podcast on that, but that, of course, came across our desk. SPACs. Everybody's focused on the rise of SPACs. Well, SPACs are kind of complicated. Are there conflicts embedded in the way SPACs operate? There's another topic. Crypto. 
crypto volatility, right? Crypto is becoming more mainstream. We've seen announcements even the last couple of days about mainstream players in crypto. Obviously, of interest to us, there's a lot of VC backing of crypto. So we pay a lot of attention to that. So that's just an example of the range of risks to keep my job really interesting. My job is to make an effort to try to manage those risks on a, on a daily basis. And I'll check with Greg and see how that's going. But um, you know, when I, when I think about the overarching risk, and I know you're broadcasting or you're based in DC, and so I know you have a lot of policy people and people on the Hill probably listen to this podcast. The issue I see is given the risk I just described, they're coming up with more velocity and more var- market volatility than I've ever seen in my career. And I've been doing this a pretty long time, right? So the issue then is the gap between the risks, including financial market risk, and regulation, I think, is growing wider. It's just growing wider. It's really, really hard to keep up to regulate fast enough and, and anticipate the next, next risk. So, you know, we're happy to be part of that dialogue. It's an interesting conversation. And let me just quickly answer your second part question real quickly. How does it differ from legacy? I think it's kind of the same risk in legacy. I came from legacy banking, kind of the same risk. What I would say is, in that world, there's kind of a status quo bias. And what I mean by that is they kind of assume things are mostly going to be the same. And we kind of assume the opposite. We kind of assume mostly things are going to be different. And so you just evaluate risk differently when you think about the world that way. So it is, it is different. So we've talked about competition and we've talked about risk. And I, I, I want to thank Michael for the laundry list of issues for our future podcast as well. Uh, really, many of those issues are issues uh, that have been on our radar and, and we've spoken to them uh, before or, 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 or we certainly plan to in the future. Uh, but social issues are incredibly important nowadays as well. And, and how companies respond can be a source of both reputational capital and risk. But social issues can be thorny, especially where companies are asked to speak out to and on political issues. Uh, so, so, Greg, I mean, how do you think about these kinds of issues, social issues, and, and how does Silicon Valley Bank navigate them? Yeah, Chris, no question that things have changed as far as how companies have had to weigh in on the social uh, issue topic. Um, and you go back 10 years ago, if somebody would have said we'd be talking and having the conversations we're having, you would have said, I don't, I can't imagine that that taking place, right? Um, so that's that's what's changed. Let me just say, first of all, I actually think it's a good thing that we're weighing in um, into the topics as companies, because companies are made up of a bunch of individuals that actually have perspectives and views. And as we talk about, you know, the evolution of companies and what they're all about, and this is the rise of ESG. And I think when ESG first came about, I think there was a lot of people that said, oh, that's going to blow over quickly. That's not a big deal. Uh, Don't worry about it. And now it's going from not a big deal to uh, front and center. And I think it's, it's healthy for society and I think it's healthy for, for companies. So your question about how do we navigate that, um, we, we, we try as much as we can to say, um, let's, let's stick to our, our swim lane, meaning our swim lane around the innovation economy and things that really impact that. Um, and, and I say as much as possible because you want to do that as much as possible, but you do, by definition, weigh into other things too. But let's just talk about what that means. Um, let's talk about uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion as one as one uh, topic. 
we as a company have been on a journey for the last six or seven years when our head of HR and, HR and I got together and we said, we need to start making a change in our uh, demographics across the company. We're not, we're not purposeful in thinking about creating more diversity. And that's on our board, that's on our, on our team. And so we had goals and objectives and communications, but I would say it was kind of um, under the radar screen. With um, George Floyd's murder last year, um, it became front and center. And we looked and we said, um, we are not doing enough. We're not, we're not visible enough about it. We're not um, jumping into it. And it's not right for our company. And it's not right for the industry that we serve, which historically has not done a great job of diversity, equity, and inclusion, the innovation economy. So we came down this journey about going into what does it mean for SVB internally? What do we want to accomplish there? What is our leadership role? What should we be doing in the innovation economy? How do we drive that? And then the broader community in general. And so we took a tack that we have goals across all three of those things. Um, we do town halls now on a quarterly basis where the exclusive focus is on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I said, we have to do that because we need to be held accountable as a company. And the only way you can be held accountable is if you talk about it and you let people weigh in, employees, about are you doing a good job? Are you not doing a good job? And those are uncomfortable at times, but that's the only way you keep it top of mind. And so I worry that too many companies are going back to where they were pre-George Floyd. And I don't think that's good for anybody. And so for us, we're thinking, we're thinking about it, keeping it, keeping it top of mind and acknowledging that we won't always get it right, but that we're coming from a good place and we're trying to truly make a difference both internally and externally. So Michael, if I can just pick up on what Greg um, just said, um, obviously there are enormous benefits uh, to being vocal and to being uh, public about uh, social issues. Um, so how do you assess companies in their ability to navigate these complex questions and talk about them? Um, obviously, in some cases, companies have had to change uh, because of legal requirements in California, for example, uh, to bring in board diversity, the NASDAQ listing standards here. Um, but more broadly, we see companies being expected to speak um, and to be involved in social issues, as Greg just mentioned. Um, do you choose companies to lend to that reflect your values? Um, Given the importance of these values, as Greg was just talking about, is this part of your lending decision? <clears throat> Let me pick up on what Greg left off with, which is DEI. So there is an example where we have a business called SVB Capital, which is our investing business, which Greg described at the top of the, of the podcast. There's an example where we think we have a voice in that you know, innovation and, and funding ecosystem, and we want to use our voice. So early on, again, this is post-George Floyd. Uh, there are lots of ideas about how to how to do that, right? And we were part of a lot of those discussions. And the question is, how can we best do it? The way we decided early on, which I think will move the needle, is moving the needle, is something called, to be concrete, the diversity rider. The diversity rider was invented not by us, but by uh, an early stage VC firm. But it's basically the idea of investors, and we're an investor in this particular part of the conversation. When we invest, we should put a rider in the term sheet saying basically that uh, underrepresented investors can also invest side by side with brand name investors. The idea is, is look, investing to some degree has been a club over the last 20 years, right? You've got top tier VC firms who are fortunate to have relationships with most of them. Most of them want to broaden the investor base and most of them are in that dialogue with us. So this is actually a way to do it. 
you know, she put, put a term in the term sheet that says, when you do your original funding for these companies, which as Greg said, can become billion dollar companies, we want you early on, early on to bring in underrepresented earlier stage firms. And the way VC used to work is very, very hard to get that seat at the table because you didn't have a long enough track record. You didn't have a big enough brand name, you know, enough visibility. This is a way to change the arc of that. And I'm pleased to say we've done it in term sheets. We're doing it and we're encouraging others to do it. We're an advocate saying, look, we've got a voice. Let's use the voice and say, this is a way to bend the curve. That's really pretty cool. And I, I think potentially quite significant. That is super cool. I do like a empirical analysis of contracts and I'm just like, I would love to have just a data set, like a corpus of term sheets that I could go through and kind of read the evolution of these, these writers. Kate, 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 Sorry, Kate. Sorry, am I not allowed to nerd out that way? You're ruining the podcast. <laughs> Chris is like, you're off the pod. You're a highly experienced podcaster and we've had 20,000 people listening in on your podcast and you bring up an empirical analysis for it to be included. It's just like a, a side note. <laughs> um, I'd actually like to ask a question from before when you were talking about risk. Regulatory risk, the fact that you have SVB capital alongside a bank, does that raise any thorny issues for you? Look, the answer is uh, this is actually not novel to SVB. Um, most banks and large financial institutions have side-by-side investing and lending arms. The way you do it is they're very separate businesses with their own governance and their own separation. Um, the regulators have gotten comfortable over a period of decades. So this is not for us a, a defined area of risk, if you will. I mean, we, this is something you can navigate and, and most big financial institutions are able to navigate it. You know, that's really interesting. You know, one of the one of the the, the observations and jokes that I always kind of make when you think about uh, fintech in particular, uh, you know, I say the West Coast makes it, the New York uh, scene trades it, and Washington, D.C. regulates it, and they all really can't stand each other. But, but you know, seriously, when, when you think about the, the differences, the cultural differences between uh, Northern California, New York City, and Washington, D.C., I can't help but sort of think about uh, its general reception to different kinds of things like like ESG and 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 whether or not there are different um, uh, local preferences or even ways in which uh, the the different cities and regions are interpreting what ESG means in in practice. Uh, what have you seen um, and 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 how are you viewing uh, their possible responses? Well, I agree with your point there they are absolutely bubbles. New York, Silicon Valley, and DC are absolutely bubbles. There's just no doubt about that. That's another podcast, by the way. But to your question, uh, in, in terms of the difference, I do think there's a difference. I think there's kind of equal commitment, but I think there's a pretty big West Coast topic here that I'll come in, and I'm interested in Greg's view, um, which is that I think the voice of the employee is louder and more insistent in Silicon Valley than in what I'll call legacy New York or even DC. What do I mean by that? For example, we survey our employees all the time through a technology tool called Humu, and we ask them their opinions on things. They care deeply about ESG, and every time we survey, we get more and more data. To Kate's point, we have data that people care about this stuff, and they want us to wait in. And so we, we hear from them, and, and so when we think about picking and choosing where we use our voice, absolutely our employees want us to do it. And there's a point you may have discussed before, which is there's a generational shift for sure. We've got a pretty young workforce. And that young workforce, no doubt, puts us front and center where they want to work and the voice they want us to have. And so 
that matters in how we pick and choose to use our voice. The only thing I would add on to it, to what Michael said is, I think about it, you know, the ESG and what they, which each of those terms mean. I think California, the West Coast, is got, uh, uh, they'd be a higher emphasis on the E and the S, and the East Coast has got a probably a higher emphasis on the G. And so that's probably one way to, to think about it. And I, and I think it's starting to blend together a little bit, but I think it's going to stay that way for quite a while. Like the West Coast is going to be bigger champions of ENS and the East Coast is going to be bigger champions of, of G. And that's both at uh, the New York, in New York, when I think about the, the financial industry, as well as the regulatory industry, I think G is going to be still the main event. And I just don't think it's the same in California. Michael, Greg, Thanks so much for being such a good sports with taking questions from all sides. Uh, it's really super interesting stuff. And I know I speak for Kate and Yesha and our viewers when I say thank you for your time. Um, we, we really look forward to watching and, and seeing what comes next for you. Thank you. Innovation presents more than its fair share of challenges for financial institutions. You have to price not only the opportunity, but also risk in a world where information can be limited. Moreover, in a changing world and in a world of changing expectations, navigating risks involves as much an understanding of myriad stakeholders that make companies successful as it does shareholders and boards of directors. I'd like to think that this kind of work may just then open up opportunities for not only innovative technologies, but also innovative tools and strategies for social progress. As Michael and Greg noted, values can drive value, and it's incumbent on firms to incorporate both into financing. At any rate, it will be interesting to see where it all ends up and whether social disruption will emerge as big as a disruptor as technology. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at ChrisBrummerDR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.